Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the blatant hate and trolls. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get Now, we've been talking an awful lot in the last few years about intermediary liability laws. The most common one that we talk about, obviously, is what's known as Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. But the DMCA, Section 512, is also an intermediary liability law. And there are other such laws around the world, including the e-commerce directive in the EU, Section 79 of the Information Technology Act in India, or Article 19 of the Marco Civil in Brazil. Uh, These laws have helped enable much of what we love about the Internet, the ability for there to be so many places and so many ways to have our voices heard. Social media, blogging, podcasting are all really possible because of these laws that separate the liability from the website or service hosting the content and place it correctly, in my opinion at least, on the entity who created the content. However, as there's been something of a growing backlash to what we'll loosely call bad content online, people have often jumped to the conclusion that these laws are somehow to blame for all of that bad content. And when that's the case, they often argue that if we just reformed or got rid of these laws, we'd somehow stop the same bad stuff from appearing online. In the past, I've sometimes tried to point out that most of the problems that people are describing are not actually problems that you solve by technology, but rather they're really societal level problems that society itself has struggled with for decades or in some cases centuries. And I think it's a little bizarre to think that making websites liable will somehow solve these problems that entire societies have struggled with for so long. Uh, Heather Burns, who is the policy manager for the Open Rights Group, which I'll say is a loose equivalent of the EFF for the UK and is the largest digital rights and campaigning grassroots organization in the UK, recently tweeted something that summed up this idea much better than I ever have and highlighted a a really useful framework for thinking about this. It was in response to a, a widely read New York Times article describing a truly horrific situation in which a Canadian woman used the internet to post terrible, horrible, defamatory things about a bunch of people that she had uh, disagreements with, some going back decades. Some have blamed Section 230 for this result, but as Burns pointed out in her tweet, there were so many societal failures that preceded the internet being the problem. And so uh, a slightly paraphrased, paraphrased version of her tweet read, My takeaway from this awful saga is that intermediary liability law is now expected to carry the weight where social safety nets, mental health services, and criminal law enforcement have failed, and that's not what it's for. So, for today's podcast, we have Heather Burns on to discuss this idea uh, and some other thoughts on the state of intermediary liability laws today. So, Heather, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. Good to be here. So let's start with that tweet. Uh, you know, as I said, I, I loved it. It's such a perfect description of all these things that are that are happening and, and how everyone seems to be, you know, putting all of the blame on, on intermediary liability laws. But can you go deeper into kind of what you mean and sort of what made you tweet that in the first place? It was such a remarkable story, wasn't it? And 
it was one of those things where the more you read it, the more your jaw fell on the floor. And I was really taken by the part in the story where, you know, the woman was actually on trial for this harassment and an undercover operative followed her leaving the courtroom at, when the day was over to go to a public library, sit at a public computer and continue the abuse <laughs> right. she was actually on trial for. And that really makes you think, you know, how do we expect someone like that who is obviously desperately unwell and desperately in need of, of all sorts of assistance, not least, the least mental health care, to be stopped or curtailed by platform regulation and intermediary liability law. And it's like you said, we are expecting intermediary liability law to fill the gap where society has failed on so many levels. And the reason that story sort of piqued my interest and inspired that tweet is because here in the United Kingdom, that is actually the political strategy that we are moving towards with our reform to intermediary liability law. It is sort of openly seen as a replacement and as a substitute for places where uh, there have been gaps in the civil, the social safety net, mental health services, the things we used to take for granted have just sort of crumbled away. And intermediary liability law is being charged with filling that gap, and it's not going to help anything. Yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about the, the UK context, because I'm sure, mm-hmm. um, I mean, hopefully some of our, our listeners will, will be aware of it, but many probably are not. So, so can you describe what is happening specifically in the UK? So when we talk about intermediary liability law in the UK, what we're referring to is loosely referred to as online harms, meaning the online harms framework. It started as a a green paper, which became a white paper, which has now been uh, the government response. And now it's going to be something called the online safety bill. But for the sake of the discussion, when I say online harms, when anyone from the UK says online harms, really, that's what we refer to this, this sort of legislative process. And this began, it was probably spring of 2019 that things really started moving on this, that government has stated all along that intermediary liability law needed to be reformed, as most governments around the world have intended to do. The impetus, of course, was Brexit and the UK's withdrawal from the European Union. Now, the body of internet regulation we have pretty much lived with in the UK for most of the time that the commercially available web has existed, came from Europe. It was EU law transposed into domestic regulation, whether that was um, intermediary liability or privacy or everything up to including things like cross-border parcel delivery. That actually all came from Europe. Then 2016 happened, and the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union, which we have now done. And from literally the day of the referendum, as my friends will tell you, who were there like literally holding me up from falling on the floor that day, the question that started running through the minds of those of us who work on the web and work on the regulatory frameworks that shape the web is, what is this going to mean? Because to the best of my knowledge, there is no precedent in history for a young industry, and the internet is a young industry, being forcibly withdrawn against its will, I should say, the tech industry in the UK was very pro-Europe, being withdrawn from the only legal framework it has ever known to be replaced with what? 
Well, they didn't answer that question. They, I don't think they really expected the referendum to go the way they did. Um, it was just sort of table-thumping mantras about taking back control and reclaiming sovereignty. And we did that. And then there was a question, okay, now what? And the now what has turned out to be the online harms framework, which is taking back control and sovereignty, not just out of the European standards and frameworks, which I should note were based in fundamental human rights, to be sort of literally wrapped in the Union Jack, a sort of more nationalist, inward-focused attempt on internet regulation to do something different. But that's kind of difficult to do when you are an island of 60 million people, plus Northern Ireland, as opposed to the half a billion person trading block we just left. So there's a there's a peculiar Dermot determination. I swear there must be some sort of running gag going through Whitehall about the phrase world leading, because they constantly invoke this phrase, world leading. The online harms framework will be a world leading thing that everyone will want to copy. Um, but the internet, I don't need to tell you this, is global. It's connected. You cannot take a uh, take take a body of regulation from 500 million people to 600 to 60 million people doing it differently going it alone and spec- expecting the rest of the world to follow you but nothing about brexit has ever made sense and <laughs> that is where we are mike oh gosh so in terms of of specifically the the online harms framework mm-hmm. um you know do you want to describe it and and you know, the way it's sort of been laid out so far, um, you know, my understanding from not following it that closely uh, is more or less that, that, you know, it is putting a lot of the onus on to websites, platforms, however you want to describe it, to say that if there is some sort of, you know, online harm, they have a limited amount of time to, to take it down or, or hide it in some form. Is that is that accurate? That's very accurate. And we'll start with the absolute basics about the phrase online harm. What is an online harm? <laughs> well, they actually didn't define that. And if you tried to get them to clarify that, you just sort of got the same thing that we've gotten for the past five years, which is Brexit means Brexit. <laughs> you know, online harms means online harms. And it's become a sort of catch-all. Um, certainly those of us in policy, we, we refer to it as the, the laundry list of grievances or the Christmas list of grievances, if that's your <laughs> preferred uh, nomenclature. Online harms in the public mind and certainly in many political minds is basically any grievance anyone has ever had with the internet. Right. And you certainly hear that some of the policy exchanges and roundtables I'm in where I'm just wanting to bang my head against a table because I'm wanting to talk about the legislative issues on the table in front of me and someone wants to go on about something bad that once happened to them and we need to legislate about this. So the, the actual debate has been very badly polluted and contaminated by grievances. The actual piece of policy and legislation we're dealing with as the online harms framework is centered around a concept called the duty of care. And the duty of care supposes that um, an online service, be it a social media platform or a small startup, has a duty of care to its users. Um, And this this is actually a concept borrowed from health and safety. 
that you have, there's a physical duty of care to a place. There should be a physical duty, an emotional, an electrical duty of care to a site. The way I explain it to people is this. Think of um, the nearest municipal park to your house. Just little park, maybe some paths, some benches, some playground equipment where people walk their dogs and their kids play and where you sunbathe on a nice day. Your local authority, your council, whomever, they're responsible for mowing the grass, emptying the bins, keeping the playground clean, making sure the, the play equipment is safe. That's their legal and uh, ethical duty of care over that park. If two people get into a fight in that park, the council did not have a duty of care to prevent it. But the online harms framework supposes just that, that if mm. something bad happens on the internet, the site, the platform, the service where that bad thing happened was responsible for it. And that alone is just a fundamental overhaul of 25 years of internet uh, intermediary liability, isn't it? Yeah, it's basically the opposite of, of the way that, that everything has been done. Um, this is where it gets very political as well, because in the five years since the Brexit referendum, um, we constantly waffled back and forth on the issue of what portions of EU law and concepts and the human rights-based framework would be retained in UK domestic law and what would be, be changing. Because yes, it was an opportunity to maybe look at what wasn't working and do something better ourselves. There's lots of examples of that. On the other hand, there's a lot of um, anti-European spite, which is just determined to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And even if something good came from Europe, we've got to get rid of it just because it came from Europe. And what we've now had uh, after five years of waffling back and forth saying, yes, the UK is going to retain the prohibition against general general monitoring obligations to saying, no, we're getting rid of that. Hmm. So the UK is now saying we are not going to keep the e-commerce directives prohibition against general monitoring obligations. And that that is your entire intermediary liability framework blown out of the water. Yeah, that's, that's scary. <laughs> it is. So uh, what is what does the duty of care actually mean? Well, this is complicated, so just buckle in, folks. Um, <laughs> the framework holds that a service provider, again, whether it's the biggest social media giant or the smallest mom-and-pop business, will have a duty of care to its users. Now, that falls across different types of content. There is the content we know as legal and harmful, which none of your listeners would disagree with in any shape or form, things like child abuse, child sexual abuse material, terrorist content, incitement to violence, things which actually already exist and are prohibited in, in law and which every platform will have extensive policies against. Then we get into the more gray areas of the duty of care concept, which is what we would call legal but harmful, mm -hmm. which is where we get into very subjective things. And again, this is where our, our laundry list of grievances comes in. When the, uh, the white paper uh, came out, there was actually a sort of like table. They had a three-column table of like the severity of things. So legal but harmful included things like um, coercive behavior, intimidation, disinformation, 
um, promotion of FGM. That was a very specific one. But as the legislative debate continued, this is where every charity, every support group, every special interest started piling in, saying, our issue, our focus needs to be included in this online harms framework. Hmm. So it went from sort of very clear things, which is like the absolute no no's plus the subjective middle ground to everything being subjective. Um, there are clear codes of practice which government has issued on the, the two big ones, which is terrorism and child sexual abuse material. At the outset of the plan, the, the understanding was that government was also going to release standards uh, for content moderation for every single one of these subjective things. Now, you're a, a small startup platform. You don't want to be Facebook. But maybe you're aspiring to be something in the middle. And from the start, you are having to apply hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of government guidance on the moderation of legal but subjectively harmful content to everything that happens on your service. That was never going to work. Yeah. And that was a point that um, was vigorously made throughout, I would say, 2019. The um, white paper closed in, I want to say, summer 2019. And there were, as you can imagine, hundreds and hundreds of responses from everyone from the biggest platforms to business groups to civil society groups like, like Open Rights Group. And... The government response was teased in February 2020, and then the pandemic hit. So the online harms framework and legislation was put on hold for until Christmas. It was just before Christmas that the uh, full government response came out. So we've had a 10-month break, and now we're fully back in it, expecting some form of legislation in 2021 about how this law is going to work and it's still being very badly fought over by groups who want it to be rigid and hardcore and impossible and groups like ours who are concerned with the freedom of expression and privacy issues and everyone in the middle and it's not going to get any easier <laughs> yeah i mean one of the things that strikes me about this is you know, there seems to be this assumption among so many people that, you know, it's obvious which content is good and which content is bad. And that, that seems to be some of the thinking behind this. And, and it, that's the part that frustrates me the most. Like people assume, you know, they'll admit that, okay, yeah, there are some hard cases, but they assume that it's like, you know, 99.9% .9 obvious, black and white, this is good, this is bad, whether or not it's legal. I mean, you, as you made the point, the the legal but but harmful um, or what some people have taken to re referring to as lawful but awful mm -hmm. um, you know but but the reality is and this is the point that I keep trying to make to, to more and more people it's like you know it's not clear like the, there's a huge amount that is is very much subjective and very much a gray area and what you think is harmful other people do not and and in fact stuff that you think is really good and important and valuable lots of people will claim is harmful uh, and and people don't seem to recognize the impact that this would have in general on on very important and useful speech out there 
Well, the point we've made from day one is that the only thing which can logically result from a uh, intermediary liability system where everything is in scope is collateral censorship, right? which is when the most conscientious site administrator will have no choice but to take down what may be perfectly legal, perfectly innocuous content out of fear of punishment from the regulator. Now, we haven't gotten to the regulator yet because we've actually only gotten one third through the online harms <laughs> framework. We've been talking about content. Right. And remember everything in um, any sort of law right now is your three C's, your content, your contact, and your conduct. So we've talked about content. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to talk about contact. Again, this is under the, 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 the umbrella of a concept of a duty of care. And where children are concerned, because this is now, interestingly enough, being depicted as child safety regulation, um, there is a push to make private messaging within scope of hmm. the online harms regulation. This is something that we ourselves and other groups have lobbied very hard against. Government doesn't want to hear it because the sense right now is the only reason you would use private messaging is if you're trafficking in child abuse material. Wow. Likewise, encryption is in scope, particularly end-to-end -end encryption. And if you sit in policy meetings, as me and my colleagues do, and you end them wanting to stick your head out the window and scream, <laughs> it's because many of government's visions and plans for encryption are around one specific company. I don't need to name that one, but you know which one it is. <laughs> yep. But you know the cliche that, you know, governments want to regulate the web as if only two companies exist? That's yeah. very much what they're doing here. So they've brought private messaging and encryption in scope of the regulation. And one thing we have been trying to get clarification on <clears throat> for months is will the use of encryption by a service, by a site, by an app qualify as meeting the standards of the duty of care or will it be a violation of it? Right. Because if you're using end-to-end -end encryption, you might be protecting a child abuser. But right. what about all the security and all the, the banking transactions, um, anything that goes through encryption? So this is just a classic example of, you know, so won't somebody think of the children and not thinking through the idea. Interestingly enough, um, at the white paper phase, um, business to business services were also in the scope of this. So they wanted even the internal systems that we as a company use every day and that you as a company use every day to be in scope because, you know, somebody might be trading child abuse images on the company Slack. Hmm. So that's that's how hard we've had to work to to cut this framework down to something we could even even deal with. So we've talked about content and we've talked about contact. And the third one, and this is the one that I have to say, Mike, is keeping me up at night, is the conduct section. Um, Jillian York has talked about the white man's burden, which is. Mm -hmm. Uh, we need uh, to remove anonymity on the web. Everyone should be ID verified before they're allowed to say something. Um, I've, I've respectfully forked Jillian's statement, and she liked the tweet, so she's okay with this. 
that what the online harms framework proposes is what I call the white woman's burden, which is <laughs> we need to age verify all users of the web in order to identify the children in order to apply the duty of care to them. And that will include things like content moderation and interception. You know, there, there, are, there are companies right now that would love to be able to intercept commun children's communication. Yeah. Um, it will include end-to-end -end encryption because the only reason a child would be using end-to-end -end encryption is if they were being groomed. I don't make mm. this stuff up, Mike. This, this is what I hear in the meetings I sit in. And even to apply different standards, um, different user experiences to them. Uh, children should be receiving a different online experience anyway through GDPR and data privacy law. Mm -hmm. And age verification, identity verification, in any case, were initially meant for only for things like obvious objective adult and restrictive content, you know, adult material, um, buying guns and knives online, whatnot. This is expanding it to age verifying everyone um, for all content, subjective, objective, because the children. And again, the companies are going to have to do this if those lobbyists have their way in order to achieve the duty of care. So all of these sort of horrors about the basic principles of, of how we've lived online for 25 years, freedom of expression, privacy, um, surveillance, all come in scope of this law. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's absolutely frightening. <laughs> it really is. Um, oh man. So, <laughs> um, and, and, I think, I mean, it's, it's amazing, you know, you, you take all of that and, and, and this entire approach and all of the problems that, that, that stem from it, which I think, you know, should be obvious to people who are listening to this and, and that we've discussed in so many ways and you take it back to, to your original tweet and, and it highlights so much of the disconnect, which is, you know, to, to some extent you have this sort of, you know, political policymaking regulatory class of, of folks who have failed to handle all sorts of societal problems for however long uh, and and sort of rather than recognize one, their own failures, um, two, the sort of impossibility of dealing with some of these societal issues um, are just saying, well, we're just going to pass the buck onto websites uh, to solve all of it. And if they don't, then they get in trouble. One of the things we hear all the time um is, is a certain amount of surprise that the online harms framework is a conservative policy. I even hear that from conservative, conservative uh -huh. politicians. Um, on the surface, it's the most unconservative piece of legislation you can think of. And by that, I mean capital C conservative, the conservative party, who is the ruling party right. here in the UK. Um, after all, it's very heavy-handed uh, interference in businesses. It's heavy-handed government control and regulation. Um, and its interference in personal and private life. But when you hold it in the light of what we were discussing at the beginning of this talk, Mike, um, as a substitute for a social safety net, it's a very conservative piece of legislation. 
We've had 10 years of conservative austerity absolutely decimating the foundations of everything we used to live with. Libraries have closed. Um, community centers have closed. People in work still rely on food banks. Um, London 2012 feels a hell of a lot long, longer away than nine years. Um, we as a nation have completely changed since then. And that was before the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. Um Society has been really quite decimated over 10 years. And here comes a conservative government saying it's private industry's responsibility to take care of it. Why repair and mend the social safety net when you can just outsource it? It's privatization. Um, Thatcher famously said there is no such thing as society. To me, the online harms framework says there is no such thing as society. There's only content moderation. (laughs) that's a good line that's a depressing but but a good line oh and it is it is a very um remember the nature of government transition is this uh the online harms actually came about during theresa may's premiership Mm -hmm. and it is an extraordinarily mayest piece of legislation um she Oh, God, she hated the web. She hated technology. She basically hated anything that happened after, I don't know, 1970. Um, <laughs> her only use from for the web was as surveillance directed inwards, you know, law and order and discipline. Wrap that in the Union Jack flag of post-Brexit nationalism, and you have what I've come to call the British web for British people. And... It's really quite striking to sit in these meetings and these these roundtables with politicians who don't have a problem with that. We will do things our way. We will take back control. Well, right. Careful what you wish for. Yeah. So so we've discussed like a bunch of different elements here from you know content moderation, freedom of expression, privacy, all of which are are. Um, potentially impacted by this. We've talked about social safety nets. Um, you know, one other area that I think is important that doesn't get as much attention, but is perhaps equally important, is just basic due process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that's impacted by this? So the notion is that there will be an online harms regulator, which is going to be Ofcom, which is the broadcast regulator. Right. Sort of the rough equivalent of the FCC. Rough equivalent of the FCC. You know, their their traditional work has been, you know, frequencies and television licensing and spectrums mm-hmm. and things like that. They've also had some sort of um, duties over televised content. You know, they're the ones who will find a TV show if there was swearing before the watershed, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's a very different task to ask that regulator to take on freedom of expression, freedom and speech issues. What they're not going to be doing is evaluating individual pieces of content. They're not going to be saying, you said something that was wrong. They're going to be evaluating how companies enforce their terms and conditions and what sort of policies they draw they draw up on these sort of Subjective but legal harms subject to the duty of care. What could possibly go wrong with that? Well, one thing out of many is, as with the U.S., we're seeing the online harms debate sort of hijacked by the sort of council culture grievance folks. Mm -hmm. 
for whom, you know, they, they just want to do the George Carlin thing and say as many offensive things <laughs> as they can. Right. Or as, as the wonderful Peace and Tech Dirt said, they want to say things without accountability. Right. So you can imagine what's going to happen the first time a traditional broadcast regulator gets a pylon from some sort of council culture group mm -hmm. that decides to single out a, a small service or whatever and run with it. Um, can they handle this? I don't know. But where due process becomes a problem is the other things like who's running Ofcom? Well, right. it, is, it is a political appointment. It's a sort of arm's length-ish regulator, but the person who is in charge is a political appointment. Now, what could possibly go wrong with that? That you have someone gets pressure to mm -hmm. come down a little bit harder on one kind of content or one kind of opinion, or maybe let other things go. Right. And uh, the current person in the frame is for the... For the um, for the job is the former editor of the Daily Mail. <laughs> uh, yes, the Daily Mail for 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 American listeners. Uh, well, I, I'm not, I'm almost afraid to try and describe the Daily Mail from my perspective, but it is uh, uh, a a one sided tabloid. I think would be my description. That would be it. putting it mildly, Mike. <laughs> yeah. And again, there's the issue of due process. What will the accountability, what will the recourse be? Keeping in mind, we have pretty bad accountability for the existing um, frameworks for content takedowns in the UK as is. Um, we have a project at Open Rights Group called Blocked, where we monitor takedowns of domains at ISP level because of the sort of child-friendly content filtering Mm -hmm. which was put in, I think, under David Cameron's um, premiership. Yep. And yes, those things should work in practice, that a parent has a right to turn on a parental filter or that an ISP has a right to block something at a ISP level if it's going to be that obviously objectively horrible. But blocked exists to track all the things that just fell through the cracks. For some reason, garden centers get blocked a lot. <laughs> Weird. Yes, the most random things. But then it's also things like, um, you know, charities for young people who are confused about their sexuality. Mm. Because yeah. you, you put those combinations of word, of keywords together and a filter blocks them. Yeah. And the reason we've had to start that project is, again, there's not a lot of recourse and there's not a lot of accountability. If your domain gets pulled, up, oh, sod you. So we've had, right. we've had to build the system as an accountability mechanism for these blocked site administrators to be able to communicate with the ISP saying, hold on, why did you just pull me off the web? Um, and the same goes for um, government ordered takedowns of uh, things at domain level. They're, they will take down a site suspected of intellectual property violations like before you could even look. But again, what's the recourse and accountability with that? There's none. So right. we've not even faced the issues about accountability and due process for the content moderation systems we have. And now right. we're going to extend that to the entire scope of freedom of speech. <laughs> uh, again, terrifying. <laughs> this, this discussion has turned much scarier than I expected. <laughs> 
I love my job, Mike. I really do. I mean, we have had one good success um, so far in advocacy um, against the sort of more hardcore online frames, online harms framework. And again, that this sort of gets back to what we were just talking about, the tabloid newspapers. There was a push mm -hmm. in the white paper for managerial liability for the speech on platforms, which is that if something bad happens or if something bad is published, the uh, the people who run the platform should be literally put in a police car and put on trial. Now, I, again, I don't want to single things out personally towards any company, but uh -huh. those of us in policy refer to this as the Zuck and Handcuffs Clause. <laughs> I'm, this is just what happens when politicians try to, to craft sweeping laws based on a fantasy of literally putting one specific individual into a police car. Right. But the point we made is if you impose managerial liability on people who run sites, and again, that's not just going to be your, your superstar American billionaire, it's going to be your yeah. average everyday site administrator. What you're actually doing is imprisoning people for speech offenses. Yep. And the tabloids were absolutely banging the table for this. They will not be happy until they see people put in police cars. But the point we made was that, you know, what are countries like Turkey and Russia and China going to say when they look at the UK imprisoning site administrators for what yep. people say on their platforms? So when the government response came out around Christmas time, we were delighted that they had pulled that. And now they say that managerial liability will only be imposed where you have um, managers who refuse to cooperate with the regulator on inquiries about their practices. It's not going to be the first port of call. And I'm sorry that the tabloids aren't going to get a headline about arresting the <laughs> tech billionaire. But what that showed, Mike, is, yeah, we've been able to chip away on some of the more illiberal aspects of this legislation little by little, but we have a long way to go. And, and so, again, bringing it back around to your original tweet, like, it's such an important point. Um, I mean, do, does anyone... Does anyone else recognize it that 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 this is you know so much of these are you know basically failures of the government themselves? They're now trying to sort of pin onto onto websites. Well, I'm speaking to you from a place known as Plague Island. <laughs> We're, we've been a little distracted over here, Mike. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> yeah. And. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you you only need to look at countries like New Zealand and see how the pandemic exacerbated what was already there. Right. New Zealand had good systems and good people running it, and look at them now. They're enjoying themselves. Right. Over here, the pandemic exacerbated faults and issues that were already there, and I don't know that anyone has had the, the emotional capacity to even focus on these issues mm -hmm. um, in any great depth, or certainly given the attention um, they should have because, you know, I'm sorry to say it, we're literally dying over here. Right. Um, it is down to civil society groups like us at Open Rights Group, like the partners we work with, other groups, um, doing our best to call attention to this. And it's also good to work with the more the business groups, um, the Internet associations. You know, they're not all big, evil, bad guys who just want to make profits. 
they understand the more liberal aspects of this as well. And we all agree that one of the keys forward to, to moving forward this will be, well, what, what's the difference we can make? And to us, that's the role of um, competition policy and interoperability. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, making it easier for people to take their content and move it to a smaller platform, making it easier for people to be able to to use a plat another platform that there's not three or four that's the default for everything, making it easier to control your experience, control where your data goes, and maybe pick something else. And again, the online harms framework doesn't address any of that. Online harms framework says the solution is content moderation. The um, Competitions and Markets Authority, which is, the, you know, as the name suggests, is the sort of antitrust uh, agency over here, has done utterly fantastic work and research on what we need to do to lay both the legislative and technical frameworks to increase competition, to increase interoperability. But that absolutely outstanding discussion it's taking place completely to the side of the online harms framework they really aren't working together they're working in silos i know from government it's like the two camps who do not talk to each other (laughs) there's there's all that as well so we would love to see and we're certainly going to be doing more work on this you know why aren't we legislating for better competition why aren't we legislating for better interoperability for that matter if you want more competition Look at the legislative burden you're about to impose on every little startup yeah. through the online harms framework. Yeah. I mean, it's a point that I've been trying to make for a while is that, you know, taking away the intermediary liability protections is anti-competitive, right? I mean, it, the, the you know, everybody thinks they're targeting Facebook and Google mm-hmm. and Twitter with, with these things. But, you know, those companies are large enough to, to mostly handle it. It'll change how they function and it will certainly cost them some money. But, you know, part of the, the real cost is it'll shut down everybody else and give these companies much more control. And so it, it goes against all the points regarding trying to get more competition. And that's, you know, it's, it's amazing to me that people don't realize that. When the, um, the full government response came out, for me, the big surprise in that was that they set aside two tiers of companies. Tier one is your so-called social media tech giants, the mm-hmm. you know the obvious ones, and they will have certain expectations and regulatory obligations placed on them. After all, they're who this legislation targets. Right. Tier two will be everybody else. But again, that's everything from anyone under Twitter and Facebook. Right all the way down to your one woman business. Right. And that's going to that's where it's going to hurt because again, Facebook, Twitter, Google, all of them, they have very very good policy teams, they have very very good legal departments. Whatever regulatory obligations you throw at them, they can handle it. Mhm. As for the other everyone in tier 2 who is dealing with both Brexit and a pandemic right now, I don't think so. Yeah. Oh boy. Um, so, so one one final point I wanted to discuss to sort of wrap up this this mm-hmm. t- terrifying conversation is you know th- there's there's some part of me that you know at times I think there's value in different 
uh, jurisdictions um, experimenting with different approaches to things just mm-hmm. to sort of learn what works and what doesn't. But when we're talking about really big things like this mm-hmm. and, and intermediary liability and, and online harms and, and sort of the entire setup of this, like I see this and see the different rules that are starting to pop up in different countries and begin to fear a, a full just fragmentation of the internet. Right. I mean, right now we're sitting at a point where, you know, Google is threatening to pull out of Australia, um, not directly for an intermediate liability, but but more of a sort of, you know, copyright news tax issue. Um, and I could see more and more of that happening where, you know, every country is going to have its own crazy rules and and certain companies are just going to pull out of, of countries entirely. Um, do you think that that is a possibility? I've actually had one policy person say they will be pulling out because of this. Right. Um, we've been heading towards the splinter net for years. And I suppose that's the most unsettling thing about the online harms framework is that there are people here in the UK who are advocating for it, who are totally okay with that. Right. Um, you have to remember, we have we, people like you and me, Mike, and people like the tech dirt readership issues like privacy, freedom of expression, freedom from government surveillance are, that's our DNA. That's not in the DNA of the people who are advocating for this plan. If we have proactive scanning of all content, if we have age verification for all content, if we remove uh, encryption from private messaging on all content, they're kind of okay with that. Yeah. And I think our task as advocates for the open web isn't just to address the nitty gritty of line 17 paragraph eight of what the legislation says it's to help people to remember what was great about the open web what could be great about it again and what do we have to do to restore those values freedom of expression privacy freedom from government surveillance freedom from ad tech surveillance Uh, because this is a giant experiment in how to do something differently and it's not going to get us back to where we were, and it's going to take everything we've had away. Yeah. Well, I'm not happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for, for people who are interested in, in uh, you know, uh, following all this and, and following you and an open rights group, uh, where, where should they be looking? Um, we welcome support and membership from all over the world. So please do visit us at openrightsgroup.org slash join. Um, even better, openrightsgroup.org slash donate. We have a um, pretty full plan of engagement for the year on these various issues I've discussed, the content, the contact, and the conduct, both individually and working with our partners in civil society groups. We have a com- campaign starting in the spring. We're going to be working on the competition and interoperability issue. And we're going to be working to ensure accountability and recourse from the eventual regulator. And we'll do better with you ba- uh, backing us. Excellent. Well, Heather Burns, uh, thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you do. My pleasure. Uh, and for taking the time to, to have this this uh, terrifying but important discussion. Uh, and um, thanks to, to everyone for listening. And we'll be back next week. <laughs>